everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. Welcome to the in-between times, and welcome to Advent, a season in the faith that has always been an invitation to those threshold moments that transform us. Many of you know we started this podcast to celebrate and examine the relationships between people, their communities, and the ways that context shapes faith. But in the year and a half since we first launched this podcast, we are living in a new world. As we enter the holiday season and mark COVID-19's first birthday, we ask you to join us as we listen, engage, and pose thoughtful questions to ourselves and to you, our listeners. We aim to prompt faithful action and invite imagination about a more faithful church and world that could emerge in the months and years to come. We welcome those of you who are newly joining us. We're glad you're here. Jesus constantly invested himself in people who, I mean, not to be cliche, but we wouldn't hang out with them either. He ate his last meal with the person who would lead him to his death. That says something about Jesus's withness and perhaps about the hope of Advent and perhaps about the good news of God, that God will even sit with me, the betrayer. Today, part two of my conversation with the Reverend Chris Romine, pastor of Common Ground Church in New York City. We talk about what it means for God and humans to be interdependent and reflect on our own limitations and vulnerability, particularly this season. And also, why is Chris, a pastor and theologian, such a fan of horror movies? And what does that have to do with the gospel? Let's jump right in. What you said before about with Kafka, what makes you feel for him and probably most of the nihilists is that there's this either belief that the community is not going to be there for them or when we look at their lives, they're alone in their lives, in their relationships. And I think that's a fear maybe we have as human beings, too, is like if I put myself out there, especially those of us who've experienced trauma or rejection, I'm going to be the cockroach in the room that nobody feeds and people shut the door on and I'm no good to anyone. And opening the spiritual process of opening our hearts or being willing to say, like, will you hold my hand? <laughs> Can I have a hug? I mean, as silly as that sounds, sit with me. That those are those moments of transformation and healing. It's not thinking the right things about the world. It's the behaving in a way as if we're interdependent. And Jesus like exemplifying that as this like, okay, here I am as this refugee child born to Mary and Joseph. We know we think that they are poor because of the offering they bring mm -hmm. to the temple when they're able to come to the temple and give thanks for the birth of their child. They bring is it a couple of pigeons or doves, which is traditionally what you could give if you didn't have enough money to buy sort of the appropriately large offering. Couldn't level up. Yeah. 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 When it comes to Kafka, to go back to Kafka, I studied... Uh, political science and theory in undergrad. And that's where I first came across Kafka. We had to read Kafka for political theory. And so in his biography, though, this is definitely, I'm paraphrasing thoughts from 20 years ago. So excuse me if it's not completely accurate, but Kafka was um, always found himself very ugly hmm. and always found himself very alienated from the world. And this was inescapable for him. And what's ironic is some of his biography is people close to him being like, he didn't think he had any friends, but I liked Franz. Aww. And he thought that he was very ugly, but actually there was a sort of wit and just joy to being around Kafka. But there was this inner turmoil that was filling itself out in Kafka's life, and we got to see it in his literary work. But yeah, there was this real 
isolation that Kafka found. And I'm, mm. I'm actually just laughing now as a preface, like, I can't imagine what my dating profile would be if I were single now, because I'm naming that I read Kafka, that I lean into nihilism, and now I'm just going to Thank add, God for Jill. That's exactly know. right. Yeah, mm. yeah, pray for Jill. And then uh, <laughs> another thing is that I just love horror movies. So I love horror movies, right? I watch horror movies all the time just to round this thought out. Yeah. And I read a lot of reviews. And there was one thing two weeks ago about a random horror movie that was terrible that I read, and it was beautiful. And I just sat there and thought about it for a little bit. It says... Every single horror writer, uh, whether it's a novelist or a writer for a movie, knows that the central component of horror is isolation. When you isolate people, that's when the monster comes. When you are alone in your bed, that's where it is under your bed. When you are alone with just a few of your friends in the middle of Texas, that's when the Texas Chainsaw Massacre happens. Typically, no horror works itself well, unless it's like an action film, when there's just horror in mass scale. It's typically when you're with people, you're safe, and when you're out on your own or with a smaller group, whether it's in the middle of the ocean or in your bedroom alone or in the middle of Texas or whatever, you are unsafe. And man, I just sat there and thought, that is one of the most theologically sound things I've read in a while. Like when we are or feel um, or seem to be alone, that's when perhaps we are at our worst. When we are isolated, that's when we are susceptible to bad things and perhaps not most human. And I think we're most human when we're with others. And I think the difference between maybe Kafka and Jesus is that Kafka found himself constantly alone and unseen and alienated. And Jesus constantly invested himself in people who, I mean, not to be cliche, but we wouldn't hang out with them either, right? Like mm-hmm. the people that he, he ate his last meal with the person who would lead him to his death. That says something about Jesus's withness and perhaps about the hope of Advent and perhaps about the good news of God, that God will even sit with me, the betrayer, uh, or God will sit with me, the zealot who wants to take on the action of God more than God's self wants to take on the action and mission of God, mm-hmm. right? Like the zealots picking up the sword being like, let's get after this. Like you're God, this is why you're here. And then for God to reply, like, this is not the mission that I had in the first place. Jesus sits with the zealot and Jesus sits with the betrayer. Mm-hmm. Jesus sits with the denier and Jesus sits with all these folks in community. And I have to think that that at least that's how I consider the hope of God um, in my life, that there's a true witness. And so my life is called into the life with others um, to be lived in community. Otherwise, I'll be Kafka or some interesting scene from a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very profound. I, I'm curious if you, when you think about in Mark, the lectionary text for the first Sunday, Mark 13, there's a call for people to keep awake, to keep alert, um, a refrain, uh, you know, on this day to come, that day or hour no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, only the Father. Be awake, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home, he puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, or else he may find you asleep and then come suddenly, which sounds rather threatening. What I think to say here is like, that sounds terrifying. That does not sound like good news. Like be vigilant at all times and no like, sleeping. be awake yeah. because the world could end at any moment and not even the angels know about it. Mm-hmm. And so at least the angels have whatever cooler bodies if they have but i mean they're safer they're just like 
oh, something's happening on Earth with Chris getting like eaten by a snake monster because uh, this is the moment. Cool. Like, you know, oh, I didn't know. Uh, and then they go back to playing, you know, cards or whatever. But um, in the meantime, we're the ones who are having to stay awake in our perpetual trauma waiting for God to arrive. So, I mean, I know I'm going dark here. Yeah. Even the way that we read scripture, and I think the way that Mark doesn't sugarcoat anything, is in a sense, if we can just, it's not negative per se, but can we at least understand the person who goes, well, that doesn't sound exciting. Yeah. That has to be held in the larger Christian imagination and the larger Christian discourse about um, how we approach the idea of God and of waiting, Mm -hmm. right? Like Advent is a season of preparation, a a sort of waiting towards, an active waiting towards, an active practice of hope, not just sort of like a false optimism. But also that stuff is hard when uh, we're reading things like Mark, our very Advent text saying, we're on a long journey and like no one can sort of blink because we might miss out on it. Uh, Like is the journey counted for anything? Is our tiredness amount to anything? Is our sort of humanity held And in Mark, I don't think this, at least this passage is thinking much about, I don't know, my triggers, my trauma, my fears, my et cetera. It's just this hypervigilance. And I know that when I'm hypervigilant to things, sometimes it goes well and sometimes I make mountains out of molehills. It makes me think, though, about... um... Walter Brueggemann describes the Psalms in particular, but this process of faith is like we are securely, some of us are securely oriented. The world makes sense. And then we become, because of some circumstance or some event, radically disoriented. And then there's a process of reorientation of like, this is the process of that we go through as human beings. It's like the, the, the initial orientation is, is just a veil. And we go through the process of radical disorientation. And only through that disorientation can we um, have a clearer glimpse through the veil um, that reorientation, which takes into account all of the mess and uncertainty and the inconsistencies that we see around the world. And I think Advent invites us into that in some ways, at least to pause and say, like, this is the time for just to give me four weeks you know, in our lives where we take stock of the world and we pause long enough to say, what does it mean? What is my purpose? What should my actions be? What does my community call me towards? Do I have a community? And through those actions, through that reflection, we might become more reoriented, not completely, perfectly, but it is a moment in time. I do think there's something really interesting that you just said. So part of what we're trying out at Common Ground, uh, this is our second advent where we launched on Pentecost 2019, is we are actively engaged in the deconstruction and the disorienting of most folks' identities and ideas of faith. Mm-hmm. I think it begs the question that of this disorientation and reorientation, where should the Christian play a part in this work? Because what we're believing Common Ground is equipped to do is to sort of as gently as possible and with the absolute resolution to maintain community and to walk with people is to sort of shatter veneers, is to take a direct hit onto the foundation of what folks thought God was and what they thought Christianity was, right? Common ground is this place where people continue. There are people who are like, oh, I haven't been to church in like 30 years and this is actually pretty cool. And there are a couple of people who are like that. One person said to me, I didn't know how to take this last Wednesday. 
this is not even Christian. Like nothing that you guys are doing are Christian, and that's what I love about it. And I, <laughs> me and my leaders are like, uh, what do you think that they right. meant by that? I think that actually, I know that wasn't asked rhetorically, but the answer I think is in the question. I do think that what we're trying to do is deconstruct so fully what evangelicalism has put on to people and has caused them harm. That we're trying to sort of interrogate that so much that it's leading in the most natural and intersectional ways to other questions about everything else. Like literally everything's on the table. We talk about intersectional good news and intersectional bad news. So the second that we think we have one thing figured out, all we've done is really identify a thread that connects to a million other threads, right? And so a lot of folks, I'll give you an example. A lot of folks found their way into Common Ground out of fill in the blank. You've heard of all the famous public you know, fundamentalist evangelical theologians that are in New York City planting giant churches. That people find their way out of these churches because they're like, I want to go to a queer affirming church. And so we're like, okay, cool. Like that's what got you in the door. But suddenly they're asking questions about the authority of the gospel when they're beginning to question sort of cultural precepts that they've downloaded, Mm -hmm. you know, like it leads them to race and gender and class and education, all of these things, right? What literally a couple of weeks ago, someone approached me and said, I don't think I can be in the industry that I'm in anymore. I've never thought about it in the last six months. I'm thinking so much about the industry that I'm in and how it might be bad news for the world. And I don't know what to do to get out of it. Right. Hmm. Had that interesting talk. But the point is when folks come into common ground, It is the explicit intent of common ground, not just to disrupt, but to disrupt things that were inherited, that we inherited in our faith and our idea of what it means to be ourselves. And I think that you, what you asked about Advent plays here, which is to say, I'd like to take the position that I think Christians should not be promising a narrative as much as they should be interrogating the false narratives that have made us into who we are, right? And too often is Christians, Christianity and uh, gospel associated with like this eschatology, this sort of good news at the end, that I don't know that we're doing enough to deconstruct from what the person is right now that's heading towards that end, right? So like the way that we are violent in our economy and in our industries, the way that we are literally violent in our Senate budget, 15% of our budget goes to destroying other people. I think that there are real things that we need to ask questions about in the environment and in our militarism and in our loyalties to America and in our conventionality towards gender and sexuality. If those things aren't interrogated while we continue to talk about the good news at the end of the tunnel, I don't know that we're like sort of shaping the sort of thing that we want in the world right this very minute. We're just pointing to something elsewhere down the road. And so actually Common Ground doesn't take a very strong position on heaven and hell elsewhere and another time. We talk about the heaven and hell right now all the time. Now, I know that that's not unique to Common Ground. There's a million other churches that are doing that, not least the ones that you've been a part of. But I do think that when we don't orient towards dealing with the absurdity of right now, the day-to-day right now, then we don't actually have a chance to imagine a better day tomorrow or a year from now because we're not doing the gritty, unsexy, slow, relationship-oriented work that we need to to sort of change our environments. Mm-hmm. Um, when you deconstruct, what do you want to rebuild or partic- co-create or participate in or welcome as the deconstruction happens? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I come from trauma 
I grew up without a dad. I grew up around alcoholism and mental health issues. I grew up homeless, if not for being in the home of a family member who took us in for the first 10, 12 years. And then you add mental health Mm -hmm. issues and alcoholism and abuse to that sort of alchemy and outcomes, someone who's got all sorts of things that they're trying to suss out. On top of that, I'm a mixed race person. Uh, Early on, I was subject to a form of racism. It was always playful with friends and whatnot, but it was nevertheless always letting me know that I'm not like my white uh, surroundings. I'm also not brown enough to be brown or white enough to be white, so I inhabit this liminal space. I was trying to find myself in a sort of political spectrum that allowed for this thing or that thing. And so I was dabbling with a little bit of anarchy post-college. And so I'm this 20-year-old mess, as probably a lot of us are messy in our 20s, but I find myself into this church that answered every single question that I had, uh, either explicitly or implicitly. Oh, the answer to this is this. Uh, For example, God is colorblind. And so I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that answers the question. Okay, I'm God's colorblind, and so I'm colorblind, and other people are colorblind towards me. And if I just sort of hold that enough, like I'm going to get to some form of peace, right? So it answered a number of questions this church did for the questions that I had about the way things went wrong in my life early on, Mm -hmm. the way things didn't add up, the way that I had aligned some hopes, definitely shaped by the middle-class American dream to my life, and those things were not panning out. What happened in this church in the best way possible is that I came to and realized these answers albeit well-intentioned, were yet another veneer and delayed me from getting to the heart of me, my own journey to self and my own journey to the heart. Mm -hmm. So then after three, four years of being at this church, typical fill-in-the-blank evangelical church, the joke, the one-liner in evangelicalism is you could pick up this church and put it in Omaha and it would be exactly the same. And we used to celebrate that as a staff until I realized like that means that this is completely, you know, sort of superior and triumphant in its culture. And it doesn't actually take into account where it is or what the needs are of that place. It just is. So this extreme sort of leveling out of the contours of trauma was what this church offered, except that was not real. It only lasted a couple of years, like a drug. It kept me happy for a little bit. And then actually it brought more problems than I started with. And I found my way out to seminary and I found myself into a Christian community. So, so if there's a final thought, I would say like, don't let Christianity mute your experiences because I don't think Jesus did that when Jesus was in Egypt. I don't think that Jesus was just the God of Christianity and then like was that in Egypt. I think Egypt shaped the God of the universe. I think the Egyptian experience shaped the God of the universe and God found God's self in that process. Mm. Um, Not like God was ever lost, but God found more of God's self in that process. I'm that same way in the Advent. What I hope towards is that I'm sussing things out at a safer degree next year if I make it to Advent than I am this year. Not that I've got the answers figured out and not that I'm going to be big smiley all the time and that we're going to sort of wrap up in a bow the happy Jesus narrative. But the hope is that I won't let go of a life that calls me to be my best self. And Christianity is the avenue which is inviting me to be my best self and giving me a damn good witness in Jesus. Chris, um, thank you so much for being here for this conversation. Thank you so much for the deep work that you're doing, uh, not only for your own best self, but providing a community in which others can strive for that and do it in a way that invites their own stories into 
uh, the story of God. Just really grateful for this time together. Likewise. Thank you for it. Friends, our next Advent conversation is coming up next Sunday, and it may or may not feature the two youngest members of our household. Frankly, there are a lot of factors involved in getting this recording accomplished, as you might imagine. So stay tuned and be sure to click subscribe wherever you found this podcast so you don't miss a single special episode. You are going to love our spectacular guests and the moments of reflection during what can be an amazing time of intention and ritual. In the meantime, you can join Chris and Common Ground and learn about their practices and values online on their website, cgnyc.church. Thanks for listening to New Way, podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. We're online at newchurchnewway.org. Our producer is the fabulous Marthame Sanders. You can see stories and photos from the humans who make up this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. Catch you next time. Thank you.